Welcome to episode five, Jared Mason, Delusions of Grandeur. Jared Mason was a force on the New York City cast of Stomp for two years. He also won the lead role portraying the legendary rocker Jerry Lee Lewis on Broadway's hit musical, Million Dollar Quartet. So if you're into Broadway, theater, or just music in general, you're really gonna enjoy this conversation. It's an unbridled conversation, and we're just in Jared's living room talking about all things music. This is also a very good podcast interview if you're doing some big auditions or you know somebody that's in the audition process. This interview has a lot of Jared's mindset about how he goes into these auditions with this amazing mindset to win a role. And we talk a lot about this mindset and we talk about the confidence that you need and the quote, I don't care factor that you kind of need. So check it out because I think this has really got some great audition mindset things to consider, if that might be you. We also talk about other music things under the sun, including my infamous 12-year-old wannabe Motley Crue audition tape. That's all in here, but before we get to that, let's take a listen to Jared Mason throwing down some Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire. This was recorded just the other day on his front porch. Check it out. Jared Mason at his house. Jared, thanks for having me over today. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Man, I, uh, we got to start first by uh, how, how I met you. Uh, my, my good friend, drummer friend, Herschel Van Dyke, who's an extremely talented drummer. Love very, Herschel. Very, very busy drummer in Nashville. Uh, you know, we were at Layla's, and I think it was just his birthday uh, or something. I went out to see him, and of course, we're all in these COVID times trying to be careful, and he's like, Hey man, I'm 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 going to a buddy's house. Uh, uh, you want to come over? You got you know, he said I can bring a couple people over. Maybe we might jam or something. I said that sounds good, and uh, so that's how I met you, man. We came over and we yeah. we, we we jammed out. We, you know, I was playing. I'm a drummer. I was playing some like what your electric some whirly. some electric piano yeah. and just coming up with some melodies. Yeah, and that was cool. Charlie Goodtime was playing. That was really cool. Wow. So, 
But uh, I, I, I always wanted to, I, I figured that I wanted to have you on, on the podcast show. And so, uh, yeah. with, with your experience and background, some of the things. And um, so, I I'd, like, I'd like to cover some of that if you're cool yeah, with that. Yeah, well, and I'd like to just say, yeah, Herschel is amazing and Charlie Goodtime's amazing. So, I'm, I'm just thankful to have all three of you guys over because you're just all monster musicians and all really nice, kind, warm hearted fellas. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you, you've got a dynamic persona, man. Meeting you, uh, a very positive person, and you have a very intense, uh, artistic-natured kind of performance spirit. And um, with your experience, some of the things that you've done, obviously the things we talked about, uh, being a part of the Stomp cast, and uh, obviously um, uh, the other thing that you did on Broadway, playing Jerry Lee Lewis in the Million Dollar Quartet. Um, were you always... Let's maybe start at the beginning points. When did you have a desire to do those things, or Broadway, or Stomp, or or you know, go back to maybe your roots in music, or and what led you up to? Hey, I want to go try this thing. Yeah, I, uh, my mom, uh, she was an opera singer, and she did musical theater, so I was undoubtedly influenced by that because. I would uh, hang out backstage for countless performances of some of those classic musicals like uh, The Music Man and Annie and Oklahoma and stuff like that. So that undoubtedly influenced me. And I, I'm not a very schooled musician. Like I had uh, two years of piano training and a couple years on the violin, but that was pretty much it. So, so I'd say largely just hanging out backstage watching these musicals was just as important. Uh, hearing these classic melodies and whatnot and seeing people on stage singing and dancing and acting. Um, but then, you know, early teens, I think uh, probably 13 is when I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with piano. I don't want to practice piano anymore and I don't want to practice the violin. <laughs> I discovered the drums. Yeah. And then I discovered that I could uh play drums in my garage with my buddies and we could be really loud and it would be really fun and we could play at parties and what impress a great, girls. So and awesome, man, right? So yeah, it's so that so then bam, my my desire was wholly just I just want to be a rock and roll drummer and that's it. I didn't have any aspirations of being on Broadway or writing songs or singing or anything. I just wanted to play the drums. And that's that's a really that's wild because part of this is what I want to get into as we talked before is how you sometimes fall into things and a lot of times in life when you fall, quote fall into something or you you know if you're if you're not trying so hard to, to try and achieve one particular dimension of your life, if you open up and look for other avenues, sometimes you fall into something and it becomes bigger than what you were trying to do or it's part of what you were trying to do. And uh, we'll also talk about the, the I don't care attitude because it's like people that go out and try and strive for one particular thing and they put their life and soul into that and it doesn't work out. You know, it, it's interesting how when things work out, it's it's because you maybe had a different perception, a different outlook, a very unique yeah. outlook where it's just like, and make, tell us about that. Like the drumming, you wanted to do drumming well, and yeah. kind of, how did that, those other avenues open up for you? I should probably go um, start with, 
I was just doing, I've been reading this book, uh, actually it was sent to me, a free book by, um, uh, it's called Dream Big by Bob Goff. He's got some, a couple of New York Times bestsellers and I've read another one of his books called Love Does and it's all just about loving people. But this Dream Big book is all about how those ridiculous delusion of grandeur type dreams that you've got inside of you those are what you need to be pursuing, you know. Uh, so one of the exercises I just did yesterday, I think it was, or a couple of days ago, is he talks about um, what was your first ambition? And I was kind of pondering, well, what was it? And honestly, the one that I could remember, the earliest like true ambition I had was to play the drums. So what happened is I didn't have a drum set. I didn't have drumsticks or anything like that. So I, and, but I ate a lot of ice cream. I ate a lot of ice cream, cleaned out a lot of Kemp's ice cream pails. Those turned into my drums. I would just have two, two, two of those each time. And I'd break, break the heads, quote unquote. (laughs) But one I'd have the, you know, the top comes off the one with the top on it that was like the kick drum sound <laughs> and then they flip it over and it's got a little higher pitch so that became the snare and that's all I needed and I, like I say I didn't have sticks so I went out in the backyard and I found sticks from a tree and um so I would and then I played as I told you one time I just I was a huge I was kind of an ACDC fanatic oh, yeah. and I had for those about to rock, we salute you and back in black and oh, so man. I was more of the it was more of the Brian Johnson phase that mm-hmm. that I was really into, but I learned those records like every single drum beat on those records. And then they were it was vinyl that I was playing along to. Oh, yeah. So I would literally learn the space in between songs because I didn't want to miss the downbeat of the. I was so obsessed. Wow! Yeah. I, I hit every downbeat after the after the space. Anyway, just obsessed. Like demolished hundreds of ice cream pails <laughs> playing along to ACDC records, and then um, so then I, I I did finally get a drum kit. My dad at the time brought brought home actually a real pair of drumsticks, and and it was oh, like did you freak out. Yeah, I just loved it, and yeah. I just thought well this doesn't really work with the uh, ice cream pails anymore. They break way too quick. Because <laughs> yep. I was a hard hitter. You know, I had no subtlety whatsoever. Did, did you ever, just a quick, uh, did you ever, remember Charlie's Chips? Did you ever do those? No. I don't think you were in the South. You were in Minnesota, right? Yeah. I think Charlie's Chips were, is a company in the South where they would they would bring, the delivery truck would come to your house. And it was my aunt's house oh. in Fort Lauderdale. And she lived way out in Sunshine Ranches out in the middle of nowhere at the time before it got all made up over there. And this truck would come driving down the road, and they'd have these big aluminum metal cans of potato chips, oh, and they were okay. huge. So that was my. Oh uh, wow! How about that? Similar, but dang, that is very. So did similar. you get a drum set after that, or what happened? So I finally got a drum kit, um, like a little two hundred dollar thing. You know, I, I mowed lawns. I earned the money to buy a drum kit, and I went in there, and I was kind of a cocky little teenager, and I went in there. And I was, I, I likened myself a, a, a bit of a wheeler dealer. So, you know, I go in there with my couple hundred bucks and there was a price tag on this kit. And I was like, mm, no, it's got to be 200 bucks, but that's the kit I want. And somehow I talked these guys down. It was B-sharp music on Central Avenue, Minneapolis. And I got myself a blue sparkly 
no no brand name Japanese probably something or other uh, generic kit. Yeah. But that kit served me well, man. I I played. I made a lot of you know I made I went out gigging on that kit for many many years after that and it wasn't until much much later that I actually got a, a bona fide nice Gretsch drum kit, but I played that blue thing into the ground and just loved it. I think uh, my first drum set was a, a like an aqua blue Jugs five piece kit and I think my I think the oh. place was called May Music in Fort Lauderdale. My mom got it. Jugs. Me. What's yeah, that? Jugs. Is that a brand name? That was that was an old like you know cheap. Oh, cool. Remember Royce drums too? Mm. Royce. Those were like the cheaper. Okay. I, and I don't know if they were Japanese drums, and for whatever reason, I remember that there were a lot of imports that were cheaper than like the Pearl kit or the Yamaha kit. But awesome. So okay, so you're so, drumming. So yeah, then what happened is um, I, I, um envy came in. Okay, I've got I've got a guitar player, just a phenomenal guitar player, uh, Steve Sweeney, wonderful. Uh, but he, we were really into Pink Floyd at the time, and he came over one day, and he had learned uh, a little snippet from a Pink Floyd song off the Wall record called called Nobody's Home, and it's this gorgeous piano song. And um, he had a little snippet, and I, I remember I was jealous. It's like, wait a minute, he, I didn't know he played piano. <laughs> so then it kind of, the, the envy got me back on the piano. Wow. It's like, wait a minute. And so I remember the next time I saw him, I learned, I had the whole song learned. So I was kind of a little one-upmanship, like, yeah, you think you can play piano, how about this? <laughs> yeah, did your, did your lessons help you probably that you well, had you didn't realize it maybe but maybe they gave you yeah. some fundamental basics to help yeah, yeah sure i'm sure it was very helpful i mean I, I actually went on to play at the minnesota state piano competition you know i i had i was good enough to get to this competition okay. and play on this northrop auditorium so i was pretty good but i did do things almost completely by ear like i would bring home the music and say mom play this so i'd get it in my ear first so when it came time to learn pink floyd by ear and this was by cassette tape at this point yeah and i was obsessed about learning by ear the way i did it the process was i'd put a cassette in and literally press play and hear one or two seconds and press stop you know and just learn that little bit and I would just do that incrementally to learn an entire song wow. and that's how I learned the Pink Floyd song and from that point on wow. I just learned everybody everything by ear to this day I don't read I mean I, I know what I know every good boy does fine F-A-C-E and I could sit there and painstakingly yeah learn a piece of music by reading but it's not something that I've ever put yeah any effort into whatsoever which regret I regret you know I'm envious of people that are well schooled I really am because I feel like they got quite quite a leg up on me well uh, you can still you still have time to do that if you want to get into the if, reading yeah. thing but I mean you know for example like one of the greatest drummers that ever drew breath was Buddy Rich couldn't read a, a lick of music 
Right. Couldn't couldn't sit down on a piano and play anything. He would sit down at the piano and make comedy sketches and fool around on it. Yeah. Didn't know, have any idea what he was doing in one of the giants of jazz well, at the time. You know? the, of course, with him, like, he's probably one of those cats that was um, on a stage playing drums when he was two years old. Yeah, like, he, with the yeah. family vaudeville show Correct. or something. It's exactly what he did. And yeah, it's, There's uh, so many guys like that. Like Gene Kelly tap dancing when he's two years old. Like, oh, yeah. From what I understand. Well, I think there's, you know, there's a... And it's one thing that I... They, that my... I started drum lessons at a very young, well, about four years old. And um, my parents say this, whether it's true or not, but like the guy would come over and he would play a beat and I could, you know, I didn't have, I wasn't, you know, Neil Pierter or, you know, Vinnie Caliuta at that time, but I was, right. I could pick up a basic beat without even thinking about it. And I think yeah. there's something about having a God's gift of natural ability that you were put on this planet probably to do music you know, whatever that is, but you, or, or other things in life. I think it's when you don't know your limitations and you're not going, wow, that's going to be really hard to learn. Yeah, you know, when yeah. you're young, you don't know any exactly. different and you just go do it. What's the, what's the story about the, I don't know anything about physics, but the, like the, the bee, like if you look at a bee, it's not supposed to be able to fly because of the oh, physics really? of the size huh. or something versus the wings or I maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a myth, but it's like, you know, no one told the bee it couldn't fly right, exactly. or whatever. And it's one of those things. It's like where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. I think you have to have some kind of a natural ability, though. And where I started, I was taking those drum lessons. And my, my drum teacher at the time was a drummer from Canton, Ohio. I've been trying to track down who it was. I, my parents can't remember. But this guy gave me about five or six drum lessons. And then let me play on his gig at the Tangier Lounge in Akron. And I played Black Magic Woman at five years old. Ooh, we have that in common, too. That was one of my... I was playing drums on Black Magic Woman. In fact, played my That's high crazy. school variety show. Yeah. And we played uh, a medley of Pink Floyd songs. Yeah. And Black Magic Woman. Awesome. And I got, I got a conga player to come out for Black Magic Woman nice. to kind of give it that Latin vibe. Isn't that funny? Dude, you're one of... I was, I was the singing drummer. I talk about this on my last podcast with Joe Waller um, about how, like, you meet somebody and you realize you're not six degrees of separation. You're, like, five and a half or five degrees of separation. Yeah. Because you have all these similar parallel stories. Yeah. Um, and that you start, like... We've been sitting here talking before we started the podcast and we started... Oh, I've got a story about him. Oh, it's Oh, crazy. you know him. It's you know, it's, it's, it's awesome because it also kind of tells you... You're kind of in the right place. That's what it's always told me. That whole, you know, when we talk about that, the five degrees of separation thing. So I'm off track there. So getting back well, to it. Um, well, speaking of tangents, I wanted to just go off for yeah. just a second when you were talking about how when we're young, we're not limited. We're not limiting ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and I, in this day and age, I can't help but think in the YouTube generation, you know, when we're able to see all of the unbelievable talent out there, I know for myself that that could be uh, detrimental because I think there was uh, great value in kind of being ignorant of, yeah. what, of what was going on in the rest of the world because I, th- I was in my own little world thinking, oh man, I'm great. Yeah. I didn't look on YouTube and realize, wait a minute, there's like 8 million other people that are way better than me. Exactly. And, and that's, that's gotta be tough. That, I mean, I watched, I was, we were talking about this, I think the other night, drummers like Eric Moore. And, um, there's another cat, I forget how to pronounce his name, like 
Giancarlo Luperini or something like that. He's this incredible, these guys that you see and they're like, oh my gosh, but back in the day, you didn't have that. You just had albums. Yeah. But the albums inspired you to be like them and learn the albums. Yep. And it wasn't maybe as much in your face and intimidating. And it's just like, well, what you don't know doesn't hurt you, maybe? Or like, it's yeah. like, it's yeah. like, you're not... Yeah, you don't know your limitations because no one's told you. Yeah, exactly. and that's that, that's a big deal. That's really a, that's is. you're totally right on that because some of those videos. But with me, I mentioned before some of those drum videos I watch. You know, I, I sure I can I I march DCI drumline. I can throw down chop stuff if I want to do that all day. And it's a lot of those videos are that. Yeah. and it's like that's incredible. But you know, can you serve a song? Can right, you play right. a song? Can, can you work with a group of people towards a common goal and that there's a difference because there's so many great drummers out there that can play anything but not all of them can can do certain things you know communicate well with others be, right. be a team player be a good person and not be you know in it for themselves well, in their drumming career well it makes me think of the interminable is that the right word drum solo like at a rock concert yeah like yeah Chops can be amazing for about one minute. Yeah. And then everybody gets bored. Yeah. They're like, okay, it's the drum solo. Let's all go get a beer now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Depends on how well it's done, you know? <laughs> yeah. Then, like, 311 did a thing where they, they get the whole band involved in, like, a drum thing. You know, yeah, Chad yeah. Sexton cool. marched drum corps, and he marched in drum line that I... That Who's this? I, Chad Sexton, the okay. drummer for 311. He marched in a group called Skyriders, and I was in Florida Wave at the time, and I didn't know him back then, but when we met later, we had a lot of cool conversations about drum corps and those things, and he since has come out and did like a video for Drum Corps International talking nice. about, you know, being a famous drummer, but having his roots in drumline and stuff like that, but they did a drum feature where they got the, the whole band gets involved, and oh, they get cool. drums out, you know, and it's not yeah, just him. That's great. And um, it, it's pretty cool, but um, yeah, so... Back to, uh, you know, you, you, you're doing the drum thing, you find yourself, and you, I think part of that is, again, being, is it, do we call it blind? You know, like, you're, you're blind to what, what you think would hold you back, or, you know, you don't have, you don't feel like anything can hold you back, the yeah. sky's the limit, and you can, you take it on yourself. I've kind of thought of it as delusions of grandeur my whole life. You know, I know that's kind of a, that has a, definitely has a negative connotation, but... I think it's important to have that. And I, give me a better term than that, because that's what I use. Is there a positive way of saying delusions of grandeur? Well, <laughs> well, you know, well, that's that's in a way it's admitting like, okay, well, that what you're thinking is that's never going to happen. But I think I think I think just being a dreamer and and making a plan and following your dream. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you're you're too old to do this, or you're, right. you know, well, you you haven't made it by the time you're 25. You're, you know, ridiculous. They, they try and put you in a box Ooh. or those kind of things. Ooh, I got something. Go for ahead. That. Yeah, this is a show I've seen a few episodes of Netflix uh, thing called Chef's Table, mm -hmm. and uh, each segment uh, uh, documents one particular world class chef. And I remember this one guy saying, "Oh yeah, you can't even." become a chef until you're 50 you know up until that point you're just gaining you're amassing experience enough for it and that, that was obviously very comforting and uh, encouraging to me because I'm I am 50 right now I just turned <laughs> 50 
But I, I feel that way musically. I feel like, man, with all this experience I've had, like I'm getting ready to make the best music I've, I've ever made yeah. because of the background. Yeah, and you have, well, you have a variety of, of background and so many things that you... I feel like when people are trying to create things and they're trying to be a lot like someone else, they don't find their own voice. And that's where the problems come. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I want to, you know, who's really big in rock now? Well, Foo Fighters, I want to sound like the Foo Fighters. Oh, or, or Jack White or, you know, when you have your own flavor and do your own thing, which I've heard some of your songs, which we, we jammed on an idea one time, you know, when it's an original flavor and, it, and it, it zigs when everyone else is zagging, I think you have a better chance of, of being noticed or getting something out there that really can catch on because I've found in history, in music history, anything that's ever really blown up or done well was you know, like ahead of its time or utilized a different instrument that people didn't use or just had a, some yep. kind of unique yep. sound or vibe to it when everybody is, you know, like um, the guy I'm playing with, Tim Stumpf, in this, in this project I'm doing right now, great guitar player, he's talking about, you know, the Nashville thing. Mm-hmm. And not knocking Nashville. I mean, it's incredible. The production here, you know, probably the greatest in the country as far as even better than L.A. at this point. But, you know, I'd say, you know, without too many fact checks on that. But, like, the yeah. production is so great here. But it's the Nashville thing, and it's kind yeah. of like a system. Yes. Whereas I like what we're doing in this project and, and the way that I think maybe it sounds like your approach. is like, no, I'm not going to try and go the Nashville system. No, I'm, no, I'm no. my own thing or like, you know, and I think because there's so much, man, there's so many songwriters and singers with talent. Everybody's got talent, but it's like what path you choose to do with your music, you know? A couple of things on that. One is uh, I've often thought if, if some young buck asks me for advice, what would I tell him in music? And one of the big ones would be definitely find your own voice as soon as possible like whatever moves you move that direction yeah because I spent way too much time copying other people like which was ridiculous like I was listening to Led Zeppelin as a teenager going man I just can't sound like Robert Plant I want to sound like Robert Plant you know or and it's just ridiculous I'm not Robert Plant yeah so that's one of the greatest things I think you can do very early on is discover your own voice. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about what we were just talking about is um, what's the last thing you just said? <laughs> uh, I was talking about not knowing or... Oh. Uh, oh, the Nashville scene. Oh, yeah, the Nashville scene. Yeah. Um, so I went to a record company here in Nashville several years ago, and I played a few songs for uh, an A&R guy. And uh, he said, man, you are just... He really was impressed by me. Well, to, to quote, at the risk of sounding like a braggart... Yeah, well, you're not. He said, you're astonishingly talented. That was his word. But if you want anything to do with this company, you need to listen to the radio and come back with songs that sound as close to that as you possibly can get. And I'm just like, well, nope. that's ridiculous. I don't want to be a part of a system like that. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, f- I feel like God made us each individual so much that, that, that he wants us to show our, our colors. Yeah. Why, you know, that's the one thing about Nashville. They've got the Christian and the country. Yeah. Here I am. But 
I, I feel like both of those realms tend to just churn out uh, the same sound one after yeah. another. Um, and I'm much more interested in something that's, like you said, just a little bit off kilter. Yeah, and I mean, and, and again, and, and not we're not knocking. Yeah, no, space. I feel bad. I'm no, not no, knocking you're not. Because I, I, obviously, this is some of the this is like the greatest musicians and the greatest recording engineers and the oh yeah, like you said, the greatest production. Totally. You said in the country, but I would say the world. Yeah. But I do think that they probably get hung up in trying to make money a system it's like a pro- it's like a manufacturing plant you get artists coming in this side they go through the processing plant and they come out the other yeah. side ready for radio yeah yeah and it's but what we forget is that it's it's like the million dollar question it's like winning the lottery ticket you don't you don't know what's going to be the next big thing you right, can exactly. try and oh well this person sounds like martina mcbride or this person sounds like carrie underwood or this person sounds like dolly parton but you don't know and the song has to have some kind of new element yeah. For it, and then it blows up like that. Um, I don't know the name of it because I don't listen to that style. But that that big song that was like mixed hip hop and country that came out recently that like swept the nation. Right. You know, like, <laughs> it's incredible because it 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 took two elements and put them together, hip hop and country, yeah. and it had never been done like that before. To yeah. that, and it just because yeah, yeah, yeah. it was fresh on everyone's ears right exactly and you tend to gravitate towards things like that it has to have some familiarity but it's like so I, I'm all for that it can't be so far out left that like no one's gonna check Billy it out Billy Ray Cyrus that might, oh, yeah, yeah. That might be who yeah that sounds about. right okay. that sounds right and I forget who the, the hip hop artist was I don't but know that's a huge you know I know probably number one hip hop tune you know because it had uniqueness so you can't you have a system like this that okay it does work from time to time yeah but I think people still want originality. They want to be the first to go, listen to this, you know? And, and like people that I can think of like that are like very unique, like Mac DeMarco. I love Mac DeMarco. I'm a huge, Just huge sounds, fan. sounds different. And, and he's on fire with the youth of America right now. Like high school kids yeah, well, and my early boys, college my kids. My boys got me hip to him. Oh, yeah. And there's other groups too. Um, well, we can we can switch. Change, we could change paths here for a second, but I mean, go back to um, you're doing this drumming stuff. You have your 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 early musical roots and your influences. Yes. How do you how do you become this this guy who you know all of a sudden wants to go audition for Stomp or all of a sudden ends up on on Broadway? What how do you make that transition? What what happened there? Well. Um, so I, t- I told you I got back into piano uh, out of envy and then I realized it's nice to be able to play an acoustic guitar at a party and have the girls hopefully try to get them swooning a little bit <laughs> so then I picked up the guitar and then bass I just love bass so anyway I'm dabbling in all the standard rock and roll lineup of instruments Yeah. but then um I realized in order to get jobs, uh, being versatile, musical theater would was was hiring. Like, can you dance? Can you sing? Can you act? Can you play several instruments? And those were things that I could do. Because I forgot to mention, I also danced when I was a child. Okay. I cool. was in tap, jazz, ballet, you know, and I loved nice. it. I loved it. And I also did uh, acting. To, to a little bit, you know, like I did an Orville Redenbacher commercial, nice. for example, standing out in a cornfield with Orville. Nice. Um, but then 
so I had a, a, like a lot of different experiences in the performing arts realm. And then, so I was doing a musical theater. I was, it was a, a, a nice gig I had in Minneapolis doing uh, Schoolhouse Rock. Nice. Uh, a, a live theater version of it. And, um, Love that. A woman, Amy Silverman, was doing this show with me. And she asked me if I wanted to go be an usher for Stomp at the State Theater in Minneapolis. And I turned her down because I had seen Stomp a couple of times, and Stomp was actually the greatest musical I'd ever seen. It really blew my mind, yeah. and I loved it. But I'd seen it a couple of times, and I just thought, nah, I'm not going to do that. But she urged me, and thankfully I, I went for it. And she also said, why don't you bring a, a picture and a resume while you're at it, because I think you'd be perfect for the show. So then I took it one step further, and I uh, wrote out a paragraph talking about how I belonged in Stomp. I told them the, <laughs> the hundreds of ice cream pails, the ACDC records story and all this. And then I went, yeah. So that, that's how I got into Stomp. Like I did, and I don't, I don't know if, I won't yeah, go let, into the whole wife thing. Oh, well, we can't. Let's do it, man. I mean, well, okay, so you, you, you what do you go? You show up at a show there and you give me your resume? Yep. Tell us about that. And, yeah, so, well... I met, uh, I went eagerly backstage with my picture and my resume and my little paragraph. And I'm this eager little Midwestern boy. Um, but you weren't, but you weren't held back by limitation. You weren't thinking, well, I can't do this. No, right? no, I wasn't. You totally knew you could do it. But I, I came across this, this uh, man and this woman who just kind of, I, I was, I said, hey, I, I want to audition for Stomp. I got a picture and resume here I'd like to pass off. And they kind of blew me off. They're smoking their cigarettes and nah, whatever. Get out of here, kid. Yeah, kind of, that's the vibe I was getting. Yeah. They shuffed me off and said, hey, go find the stage manager backstage. So I did. I ended up giving my stuff to the stage manager. But uh, anyway, that woman became my wife, the which is great. Awesome. You know, she, no, Noni? Yep. No, awesome. Noni kind of blew, blew me off. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we ended up doing touring the world together and banging on, banging on stuff together. It was a wild, wonderful, romantic way to really get wow. to know somebody. Well, tell um, me about your, did they call you for an audition or yeah. like when they... So I got a call. How long was it like when you turned in your resume, how long was it until you got some kind of a call? A couple weeks Okay. is all. You know, a couple weeks yeah. later, they called me and uh, said, we'd like you to come to New York and audition for the show. And in my obsessive nature, I took the phone off the hook. There were no, there were no cell phones at the time. Right, right. But like 97, for, for, 98? Yeah, 98. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I didn't talk to anybody, didn't see anybody for, I think, two weeks. And I went to the video store and I got this HBO special Stomp Out Loud yeah. and I just started studying it and um, so by the time I got to New York and auditioned I, I had this a lot of this stuff under my belt already so I was ready to go. Tell me about you said something we were talking the other day tell me about your confidence level and what, what you tell when you called your relatives and told them what you were going to do. Yeah. I just, tell, tell us you know. I had a good healthy teenage cockiness about yeah. me at that time yeah and and i didn't have youtube to deter me you know yeah. i didn't know what else was going on in the world i just thought i was the where it was at you know? yeah so 
You I, I called my friends and family and said, I just want to inform you all that uh, I'm going to be performing in Stomp for the next couple years of my life. Have you even had an audition yet? No. <laughs> I haven't even gone to New York. Dude, there is something. I'm telling you, there's I, something in that, man. I just knew that confidence they were not... I wasn't going to take no for an answer. I just had this right. grand sense that uh, I was going to get the gig. Yeah. Because I, I just had such deep passion for it. Yeah. And like I told you, yodeling helped me. Yeah. I think. Because there's hundreds of people auditioning. But I just threw a little yodel in there. You know, they asked us to do a hands and feet solo. And so I played, I just. You know, um, what'd they do? They're like, drop uh, their pen or I what? Just, I just thought that might set me apart. Like yeah. we talked about, right. like, let's put hip hop with country. That's going to get noticed. Let's, uh, yeah. let's do hands and feet solo with yodeling. You right. know, they, they can't forget the yodel, man, you know? Yeah. That's very smart. So, and yeah. And when you're competing with just were there hundreds, a lot of people, like people around the block? Yeah, pe- people around the block, just hundreds of people that can play circles around me yeah. and dance circles around me. But clearly that doesn't matter. It's not about your chops. Right. I mean, it's good to have some chops, obviously, but it's more about your attitude and it's more about just uh, how you prevent yourself. I mean, present yourself, yeah. you know. Well, prevent too. Prevent from, <laughs> Freudian slip, but prevent from doing things, stupid things, yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's totally true. And, and that level of confidence. And also, we talked about this, and I mentioned it before, there's a little ounce of, or uh, amount of, I don't care in there. As not as in, I don't care what this is about or whatever, but I want to do this. You know, but like, you're not, you're not living or dying by the moment. So many people are living or dying by the moment. Yeah. And that, that if they well, if they don't get this audition, they don't know what they're gonna do. If they if they don't get this big break, yeah, they don't yeah, know yeah. what they're gonna do. Whereas it's it it almost takes a different mind frame to like, well, you kind of know like like it's smart that you set yourself apart, and you innately feel like this is what I'm gonna be doing, and you had that level of confidence, which really yeah. helped you, obviously. Um, but it's like, but at the same time, you walk into a room, and if you have this level of I don't care, or you drop the level of neediness mm-hmm. and that is nowhere to be found you're going to be much more attractive to that production team whatever same same thing like in acting or like bands things that i've been in recently you're starting to you know it's like um again i'll quote i'll quote ed roth who's a who's a great piano player in los angeles he said neediness is the worst smelling cologne mm. And I was like, that's my friend Joe Walter, I like that. And it's, it's true. Uh, and, but if, if you just have a goal, you have a desire, but you have a pinch of I don't care. Yeah. Uh, I forget, it, my, my, my girlfriend's really into this one podcast, and this guy, so the guy was on Smallville, I think. And I, if, I, if I remember correctly, my favorite thing was that it's like, he goes into this huge audition, and he's eating a bag of potato chips. Right. He just walks in, like the other producers there, and he just... Hey, what's up? Eat a bag of potato chips. Uh, and and he, I think he said, like, the producer's like, look at 
Look at him. He doesn't yeah. even care. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. You know, he's not coming in going, first of all, I want to thank you so much for having me. And yeah, yeah, this yeah, has yeah, been yeah. my life dream. Desperation. And you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The desperation and the neediness. And they're like, nope, next. Yep, you know, exactly. and it's, and I also have a friend who's a, who's a friend of mine from high school. Great friend, uh, Gary Bosco, who's a, who's a, has a life coach, um, system with, I think he and his wife and, he gave me some advice, luckily free, but, but, you know, basically talking about that when you get called for something, you're talking to somebody big and you meet somebody, you know, and I've, I've met a lot of famous people. I'm sure you have too, where I know how to treat them and I know how to act and behave. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not hounding for autographs or whatever. Maybe I did that when I went to my heavy metal concerts, when I went to see like Dio and Motley Crue back in the day. But we, we got that Dio and yeah. Motley Crue thing. Well, let's, let's put a pin in that because yeah, let's yeah, talk we, about yeah, that. We don't need to talk about that. But, but uh. But that, you know, it's it's something about, you know, not the not caring factor. Well, I want to talk about the not caring for a second. Because yeah, yeah. uh, these days, um, I think about death every day. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> my boys joke with me because <laughs> from the time they were one, years old, one year old, I was saying things like, you know, boys, you can't waste any time because... Uh, we're not promised tomorrow and this life is short. So they've been getting this life is short speech all along, which yeah. I hope I didn't overdo it on that. But yeah. but yeah, for me nowadays, like the Bible says, we are not promised tomorrow. And right. do not worry about tomorrow because each day has enough trouble of its own. So that is where my not caring attitude comes into play more right. these days. It's like, you know what? I might not even be here tomorrow. So what's yeah. the big deal if I don't, you know, if I don't yeah. get an audition today or whatever it might be? Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think it, there's just something about whether it's, you know, something that you send off, like signals that you send off when you're needy, as opposed to if you have all the confidence in the world, you know you're meant for this, but you're like, you're not desperate. You just innately know that you're supposed to be doing this yeah and that that sets you apart that is a rare thing and that for you know would be my advice anybody looking to do things or get in a you know don't be desperate you know work your craft get your skills down i just saw a really cool uh, bernard purdy video where he's talking about working on your craft really and how you treat people and all that he's like like you said it's great to have chops but I, you know, going back to the intimidation factor on YouTube, and I mean, I, I watch guy, amazing guys like Eric Moore and the other guys on there. I'm just like, wow, that can get in them intimidating. But then I stop and I go, well, nobody plays like me exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. everybody's feel is different. And, Ooh. you know, for me, being a, a, a white boy growing up in conservative Canton, Ohio, I was lucky that I was raised the first drumming I heard was, was on the James Brown records. My parents, oh, baby. my parents went That's to see good. James Brown and I mentioned this on my mother podcast, so I won't get good too much to into start. it. But like, and I met Clyde and Jabo one time and, yeah. and I, I, it all came in line. So, so when I play, I can play, you know, I've innately a rocker. Um, I've got a Motley Crue story. We'll, we'll get to that sec, but, uh, an innately rocker, but I can play funk because all of my beginnings, roots of drumming, everything I heard and learned Beautiful. was Clyde Stubblefield and Jabba Starks on the James Brown And I didn't know it at the time, but it was just in me. My mom was definitely listening to me when she was pregnant with me at the record player, the little, you know, those old console record players. And um, so 
there, there's something about that. But the, the Motley Crue story. To wait, jump, wait. Oh, I gotta, go ahead. I got to put a shout out to Mitch Dane here in Nashville. Okay, yeah. I made a Christmas record with him at, at Sputnik Sound Studios. Um, and speaking of how, you know, no one plays drums like you. Right. And Mitch Dane was very comforting because I've always wanted to be so unique. I'm an only child, so I've had way too much focusing on myself. Right. And I've always wanted to be special, you know, set apart, unique. Right. And vocally, I've never felt like, oh, I'm not that great. You know, I've had this attitude, and that's what will, but the yodeling set me apart, or, you know, things like that. And it's been a crutch, because I've tried to rely on novelty, like what's going to impress people or freak them out, rather than just singing a song, you know? Yeah. And Mitch Dane said, man, you don't need to do any of that. Just the mere fact that it's you, that's enough. You're, it's your voice. That's a great point. Nobody has your voice. Yeah. So that right there in itself is enough to yeah. set you apart. And you're not thinking about that when you're a drummer like with me. You know, I'm, I'm trying to serve the song, whatever, and I recently get in this, in this situation where I'm, I'm in rehearsal with this group. And you don't know what they've been through with other drummers before, and you come into a thing, and all of a sudden you're the perfect piece to the puzzle, and you land in this thing that's is a blessing, and you're like, it's not really all about you, per se. I mean, you just it just took a while for you to get in the right situation with the right people to have your voice to, to serve this project or whatever it is, and then that's where you like that's really refreshing for everyone else as it is for you, and. Um, yeah, your your own voice. So that that keeps me from a lot of times, you know. Of course, I'm like, dang, I should be shedding, man. I should be practicing right now, actually. You yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But if I get a gig that that requires me, you know, I have enough technical skill from the the DCI drumline days and stuff, or my roots in that. But like, if I get a you know a prog rock gig, or I find out that I'm gonna you know. You sit in with something I'm going to require. Yeah, I'm going to shed again. The phones, the cell phone's going to be turned off, and I'm going to be, yeah, you know, in that zone and overdo it. You always want to be. I think you know this. You always want to be over prepared. Yeah, because you know you go way up here to your preparedness, and what they end up asking for you is about here. Yeah. and that's how I am on everything I do. Yeah, like I when I I play with Jessica Muse, who's an American Idol finalist, great talent. Um, when I found out I was going to be that gig, I learned those songs backwards and forwards. Yep. Every single stop and start on the album, everything to a T, yeah. notated it, over-prepared, got on the gig, and it was so much more fun. Yes. Because Ed Roth, who was the music director, like, he's like, okay, good. Y'all can play. You can play. Let's just relax and have fun with it. Nice. You know? And and that, you know, I'm rambling on that. But yeah. um, the Motley Crue thing, the, the when I was a kid, not talking about not knowing your limitations or whatever... I would come home every day and, um, you know, the Shout Out the Devil album when I was a kid, I would think I was 12 when it came out. And that was the heaviest thing I'd ever heard besides the amazing drumming on like Back in Black, Phil Rudd. Like, yeah, I tell that I, I probably said it before, but like the, the Back in Black album drumming by Phil Rudd is probably in my mind, the best example, at least in rock of how you serve a song yes. and how you play the fattest beats with so much space in between the notes that the, the 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 music just grooves so hard. Well, and the and the engineer uh, Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang. Yeah, Mutt Lang. I was going to mention him because yeah. I heard a story. It may or may not be true, but I I talked to a guy. We lived out in Pasadena for a while, and 
I was hanging out with a guy who was supposedly uh, a manager of the cars, mm. right? Who Mutt Lang, I think it's Mutt Lang, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, was the producer on the record. Mm-hmm. And he told me that the band would lay down their stuff, but then they'd go, when they went home, Mutt Lang would go back and redo the drum parts. Mm. Uh, but anyway, and I know the ACDC records, you know, I'm thinking, I wonder how much he had to do with those drum parts. You know, at least I'm sure he talked to Phil Rudd. And, yeah. Like they really worked it out together, I'm imagining. Well, the sound, but, yeah, I mean, the sound that he got on those those albums. I mean, I, that's yeah. my number one go-to. I'm like, or I have kids that I teach in rock band at Nashville. I'm like, you want to hear what drums should sound like? And and I mentioned this before. Of all people, Bobby Blotzer from Rat. Remember Rat? Yeah, oh yeah. He said in a, 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 a maybe Circus Magazine, it'd be like, huh. how do you get the farthest? That's in, Circus how, how you remember Circus yeah, Magazine? Oh, yeah. How you get the farthest in drumming is to serve the song and play simple. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and I I got those words. Now you know every drummer is guilty at times for for overplaying or something, which I, you know. But uh, that that stuff before. But long story, going back to the Motley Crue thing. So, I you know, um, I find out I I'm living in Coral Springs, Florida, and this apartment's called Green Glades, and um, I get tickets to 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 see Motley Crue, and it's on the Shout at the Devil tour, and they're opening up for Ozzy, Bark at the Moon. I mean, Jake Lee, you know, and this amazing night. Mm. So I find out a friend of mine goes, Hey, Chad, you know, um. I forget her name, but I guess it's, you know, the famous manager, Doc McGee. No. He manages Kiss, Bon okay. Jovi, Motley Crue, everybody who's huge. He's yep. been the biggest manager, right. the most successful manager probably in the rock industry, music industry. His niece supposedly lives on the third floor. And so I met her one time. I don't know. I knocked on the door. I mean, mm. asked if it was true. I'm like, hey. She's like, oh, yeah. And I said, okay. I go back to my room. And I take the next two days and I record the entire Shout at the Devil album like out of my boombox and I play to the whole thing on my drum set. The entire album, every song, as best as I could play yeah. it. And I recorded it on this like cheap little Kmart cassette. Wow. And I write my name on it. <laughs> you know, you don't, you know, I'm a kid. I'm, I'm 13. Yeah. And I run it back up to there and I knock on the door and she opens the door. I said, hi. I can't, gosh, I can't remember the name of this day. I said, hey, um, you're going to see Molly Crew, right? Yeah, I said, would you give this tape to them? <laughs> she's like, nice. she. I remember her giggling. She's like, yeah. She's like, well, I play drums. I'm like, my name's Chad. I'm like, would you just give it to him? And just like, you know, whatever. I didn't. I know what my goals were. And I remember her saying, are you sure you want me to give this to them? Really? And I said, yes, I do. She says, okay, I will. Thanks a lot. I don't know if she ever did, but I have a good friend in Atlanta who's a bass player. Um... And his name's Jeff Little, and he he's actually been a huge fan of Motley Crue, and he's been lucky enough to have met them several times to where now like Vince Neil and his wife see him, and they're like, or Mick Mars' wife is how he first met the band. Oh wow! And he he like has a, he like generally knows them, so I never you know I guess I'd have to meet Doc McGee to say hey yeah. how you doing Mr. McGee sir but you know what I, you know my perspective that you've done in your career like. You you have a niece that lived in Coral Street, you know. Like the, I, I'm, I'm sure it's true. I felt it like it was true at the time, you know. I mean, I don't know why she would have said that. I know that she was. I think she showed me her like all access passes and stuff before wow. she went to the concert. But uh, you know, you're a kid. I'm like, what I'm saying is, 
you don't know your limitations and you're like, you're, you have dreams. And I'm still that way to an extent. I really am. I'm like, I still feel like the ultimate gig is still out there. Yeah. I love serving the music. I love working with people. And that, that, that God can will put me in the right position. But, oh, I was going to say, you can't force anything. No. When I first moved to Atlanta, I was trying to force a drumming career there when mm-hmm. I first got there. And I had two toddlers. Boys were young. And I was teaching drumline. I was teaching stuff. And I was going out every night, though, trying to audition, trying to meet people and whatever. And I had a couple things. But then it came to it. And they were like, well, okay. We really like what you're doing. Are you ready to tour for about a month? We'll start in about two weeks. Mm. And I was like, I can't. Yeah. You know, I've, I've yeah. got two toddlers. I'm not going to be the kind of guy that leaves my kids at home. Yeah. So I stayed regional. And um, I, I, I learned that, that at the time, you know, good Lord wanted me to be in an educational music setting where I gave a lot of my knowledge in, in rock, but also in drumming, but also in drum corps, you know, to marching band and jazz band and all the things that I had done. I gave back and that's where he wanted me. You know, mm. that's where I needed to be. Yeah. And then it was only a matter after that as my son's graduated. Now, you know, he's, other doors have started to open up again and it's like, okay, you know, you can't force anything. Right. It's, it's, it's something you know innately inside of you, but it's also something that you can't force. And yeah. like, like when I moved to Nashville, you know, it, it took time. It's still taking time to meet people for them to get to know me, yeah. for me to support their music and not try, I'm not there to take anybody's gig or any of those things, yeah. to support and be a good soul and a good spirit with other people and find other like people, and then you'll be put in the right spot when the time comes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, I've made note of this a number of times in my life, that the biggest things that ever happened to me, like the Broadway shows, Stomp and Million Dollar Quartet, just seemed to pop out of nowhere. They like fell into my lap. I was exactly. not striving f- to get these things. Yeah. They came out of nowhere. Do you have, do you have a, um, what is, what's your one or two favorite memories of doing the Stomp Tour? Uh, what, you have something that comes out or well, I mean, special? Number one, the greatest thing about that show is I met my wife. Yeah. You know, that was by far the greatest thing. Who originally was smoking a cigarette and telling you to yeah, hit the road, kid. Yeah, she hasn't had a cigarette since then, basically, That's which great. is great. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, what else? Oh, man. Any, mo- any memorable shows you were telling me about? The one we had some, uh, you did the shorty short thing or oh, something. Oh, yeah, wow. But you got in trouble or yeah, whatever. I got, I got in trouble with the, with the creators of the show, like every... Six months or so, the creators might show up at a, a random show, yeah. and uh, they happened to show up one night when I was wearing these Daisy Duke <laughs> shorts for all of for the young people that have never seen the Dukes of Hazard show. Uh, the Daisy Duke shorts are like yeah. as as tight, cut off jeans, cut off jeans as you can possibly get. Yeah. So I had these things. And high high cut where you can almost see yeah, genitalia. You can see everything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was wearing these Daisy Dukes, and that, and uh, is that something you just chose to do? Or like, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do something crazy tonight. Well, the beauty of Stomp is they gave you so much freedom yeah. to explore your look and your vibe, and there was room for improvisation night after night, uh, drumming wise and dance wise. But these the after the show, the creators just kind of 
got down on me and said, what in the world do you think you were doing? So what, you came out, what, what skit were you doing on that, on those? Well, the I, think I, I did the whole show like that. Oh, okay. But I think it looked, it looked especially funny when I was on the, the 60-gallon oil drums. Yeah, like 10 feet up. And yeah. Like, you could see a lot more probably. supposed to be like Mr. <laughs> Macho and I'm in these Daisy Duke shorts. <laughs> but I, I will say that the creators of the show, Luke Cresswell and Steve McNicholas, they, they encouraged a little madness. They yeah. encouraged you to kind of just do wacky things. So even though they were reprimanding me, I think... In the back of their minds, they were a little bit congratulating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were... all. Could you tell, like, the way they were looking at you? Like, they were... Yeah. All in all, I think uh, <laughs> they just always had an encouraging thing going, even if they were scolding you. Yeah. But that still makes you... Um, and and it's, it's one thing, too. You have that kind of persona where you, you're a unique individual and you have an aura about you where your you're, you're talent, you know, like, there, there's nothing... In general, when you when you when you own something, there's nothing you feel like you can't do, right? Yeah. And and I think that it takes that, but also, yeah, it. To, what I was gonna say is, I don't recommend to people to try and go, you know, to, to like stand out within your limits, like be good at what you do, like. But if someone tried to, oh, I'm gonna get noticed because you yeah. see that, and they do the wrong thing. Yeah, they don't think, you know, like. You gotta, you gotta do something that okay. You, you still gotta have all the core talent, and you gotta know the stomp routine and whatever. I'm you're right, but you do a little couple ounces of like yeah. outside the box yeah. kind of stuff, and and like that could that definitely. I mean, obviously the yodeling that was great. You well, know? and I think if you're gonna do that, it should be an extension of your personality. Like yeah. you shouldn't just try to do random things to try to get that you noticed. can't do. Yeah, yeah. But if it's a real true. Uh, extension of your per- personality yeah then chances are it's gonna work yeah like another talent you have in your back pocket that's yeah happening like something you're... that you're truly passionate about where did the yodeling stuff start well that was a I did, I did the Medora musical in North Dakota for seven summers wow. uh, this is this unbelievable beautiful outdoor amphitheater in uh, Theodore Roosevelt National Park and um you know, two or three thousand people a night come and see this show from all over the world, and uh, just a great experience. But they needed a yodeler, and I wanted the gig, so I learned how to yodel. So that's amazing. And that—that's kind of—that's how I got a lot of jobs. Did you actually. take lessons in yodeling? No, it was just another thing. It's, I've learned the, the majority of the musical stuff I've learned just was copying records. Like I, I listened to Roy Rogers and I but copped the, his. But the vocal technique is insane, dude. That's yeah. And, and so once again, gifted. it's it's like one brick at a time. That's how you build a house. And, yeah. And like I told you earlier about how I would listen to a cassette tape just incrementally, one little second at a time, and that's how I learned how to yodel. It's that's like a. Hey. Okay, there's one. Yeah. Okay, a. Hey, hey. There's two, you know, and yeah. so on. Yeah. Build uh, a house from the ground up. I yeah. See. That's wild. Um, okay, so uh, you do the stomp thing, which is incredible. And uh, you, the other night I was over, and you were doing some of the beats, and I was like, man, I, I, I again, I told you I watched that a lot with my music education students um, when I was in Atlanta in my music history classes and showing them about theater and things like that. So I know those videos, and I talked about like how great is like the humor factor in that yeah, show, yeah, you know, and that, and you obviously have a sense of humor. 
and and what you probably brought to that show made you an asset to that show. But that that's the thing that made it for me. I, I've seen rhythm, I've seen all that, but the way the unique thing about the show is how you guys utilized, you know, the household instruments to make the sounds you did and how that's arranged, but also just the the humor in it and the personal the personalities that come out. Yeah. You know, the roles and um, describe the different characters that were in the show and, and, and who were you? So we got, uh, oh, let's see if I can remember this. It's been so long. Potato Head. He's kind of the drummer. Okay. You know, he's got to have the chops. He does the broom solo, uh-huh. you know, just all yeah. by himself. Just unbelievable technique with the brooms. And then you've got Sarge. He's like in charge of the whole thing, you know. He's, he keeps it all together. He starts the show coming out with a broom. Um, you got Mozzie, kind of the comic relief. You got uh, Doctor Who, that's me. He's kind of the lunatic. He's got a little bit of a craziness to him. Typecasting there, in my case. You got Ringo, um, kind of the uh, Ringo Star guy. He's just a good old chum, you know. Uh, gets along with everybody and doesn't make a fuss, you know. Um, you got uh, Cornish. That name actually comes from Cornwall, England. Okay. So that's, uh, you know, whatever is typical of Cornwall. Uh, and then you got uh, Bin Bitch. She, she grabs a hold of that big orange bin and just holds it down. She just holds everything down. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm trying to think of who I'm forgetting because there's one more. Is there, is there just one kind of, at the time, one female role there? Oh, there's Particle Man. Okay. That's the last one. And he's like the meticulous, like, is such a detail-oriented guy. He doesn't miss a thing. Like, he'll, he'll be the kind of guy that'll literally just study a particle and yeah. find universes within it. And that's actually, that's actually very much my personality in real life. But he, although the character was Particle Man, my wife played Particle Man okay. for a while. I mean, she played all the roles. Oh, wow. She was a swing, so she could do a multiple roles. Amazing. She's really amazing. That's awesome. So yeah, the Doctor Who thing. My, my shining moment in the show was in newspapers, where everybody's grooving on the, on the newspapers, but I kind of go off and take it to another level of yeah. lunacy. Yeah, if you, again, it's, it's, most of us have seen Stomp, but if you've never seen Stomp before, check out the video... So much humor in that newspaper scene is hysterical. The way it's put together, and there's no speaking in the show, right? None. I mean, just like, it's like sounds, like, you know, things or whatever, yep, yep. coughs or yep, yep. whatever. Grunts um, what, which, which was the character that had, like, he was always the one that got picked on all the time? Mozzie. Okay. That's the comic. That's, yep. that's some funny shit, man. Yeah, that's, isn't it great? That's so great. It's such an amazing show. So wow. re- real quick, uh, I want to touch base before we go on, on the, uh, the Jerry Lee Lewis thing. Mm-hmm. So you, you go, how does that work out? Like you, you, know, you do the stomp thing, you finish that, and then was it afterwards, the, was it a couple years went by, or was it right after you got into the, the Broadway thing, and what, what urged you to go give that a shot? Well, that was uh, a friend of mine, Tim DeSanto, who lives in Nashville here. Actually, he's originally from Indiana. Okay. Where, where are you originally from? Well, I'm, I'm from Ohio, but I marched in Starving yeah, which is that, from Bloomington. That, okay, yeah. So he urged me to get my butt down here with my family. He said, man, this is Music City. You belong here. You need to be here. And I really love Tim 
just a really great friend of mine. When we were living in Pasadena for a while, um, we met some friends of Tim DeSanto and his wife, and they said, man, you got to go down to Nashville and meet Tim. So I went, I came down here from California and checking out the scene and, and uh, Tim picked me up from the airport and he showed me around town for three days and we just talked nonstop. We had so much in common, hit some open mics and just saw the, saw the city and uh, met some music moguls and it was great. And uh, but then many years later, uh, I finally said, okay, Tim, I'll move down here. So I came down here about four years ago. Um, where am I going with this? We're talking oh, about how you, got, yeah, how you got in Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, so Tim DeSanto, he, he saw this show in Chicago, the Million Dollar Quartet. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the Million Dollar Quartet had been going on for some time, a few years before it got to Chicago. Like I know they did a stint in Florida and I believe in Seattle. But they had a sit-down production of it. It stayed put in one theater in Chicago for I don't know how long. But that cast ended up going to Broadway. But they were looking for people for understudies. They could understudy these guys. So I auditioned. Oh, Tim told me about it. He's like, man, you'd be perfect for that show. Go and audition. So I did. Everybody should know, not to interject, but everybody should know. But if you didn't know... Shame on you if you didn't know who the Million Dollar Quartet was. Oh, right, right, yeah. But we've got Carl Perkins. Yeah. Who, most people, he's the odd man out. He wrote Blue Suede Shoes, and he's known as the King of Rockabilly. Yep, yep. And then he was in the car accident, and they gave this Blue Suede to Elvis. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned that was part of the show where, yeah, yeah. where you auditioned for yeah. as Carl Perkins before you got the Jerry well, Yeah, okay, so I started out... I came prepared with some Jerry Lee Lewis. Like I, I had a rousing rendition of Great Balls of Fire prepared for my first audition. And um, played for a couple of people in that first audition. And uh, once again, I wanted to set myself apart, so I just went balls out. On, on, yeah. Just, I mean, yeah. how appropriate for Great Balls of Fire. But, right. but I'm playing an yeah. upright Steinway piano and I jump up on the piano at the end of the song goodness gracious great balls of fire bum, 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 bam I'm wow. up on the piano and uh, nice vertical leap there and this woman literally gasped <gasps> that's a Steinway she said and I just kind of <laughs> I just calmly said you know what Jerry Lee would have done it and so I I had to go through two more rounds of audition uh, next one I think there was about eight people in the room and I had to do some more. I, I think I did a whole lot of shaking going on. Uh, I don't remember what else. But for the then I had to come back for a third one, and they wanted me to have something prepared, dialogue and music prepared for all four of the roles: J- Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis, and Carl Perkins. So. And did you get an inkling at this point that like, okay, I'm probably in, but you, no, you're just still... No, just like, okay. I, I did not, I was not as cocky in as I was. In hindsight, though, you could probably tell like, okay, you know, uh, maybe. I was not thinking that way. Oh, yeah, I okay. really wasn't. I was like, you know what? This is a total crapshoot. There's got to be a million unbelievable piano players yeah. in New York City. Right. That makes you sense, know? yeah. So I wasn't, I, well, I didn't have that cockiness that but I had. That's the thing. You had the element of I don't care. I'm going yeah. for it, but I'm not, you know. Yeah, no, my, my life was not banking on this. You Correct. Know? 
but I just I, I, I give it a go. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, the third round was in front of like thirty people, and this was the full company, you know, general manager, directors, and all these people. And at that point, they asked me to do. First thing they asked me to do was do a, a Johnny Cash song. And I just nipped it in the bud, and I said, "You know what? I'm not going to be doing Johnny Cash. Let's face it. <laughs> you're, you're telling them. Yeah, you're going. Hey, uh, no, th- <laughs> I don't have the voice. Yeah. All right. Let's yeah. not waste our time here. Oh, they're okay. Well, how about some Elvis? I said, "You know what? I could pull off a damn good Elvis, but you know, I'm here because I'm I was made to play Jerry Lee Lewis." Like, that's like falling off a log for me. I'm ready to do that. And not only that, but I could play a damn good Carl Perkins. Those are my two strengths. Yeah. So I said, all right, let's hear some Carl. So I played a Carl Perkins song, Matchbox. And uh, and then once again, I did Great Balls of Fire again for the big crew. And I stood up on the piano. And I made it even more dramatic this time. Because <laughs> the piano... The general manager of the entire production was sitting right behind me as I was playing the piano. And I thought, okay, I'll show him what's up. And I, once again, I stood up on the piano and I act like I was going to fall over, you know, just totally acting. Yeah. And the general manager of the show gets up and he's like acting like he's going to catch me (laughs) if I fall. (laughs) So anyway... But he wasn't acting. He really thought you were going to fall. Yeah, he did. That's freaking hilarious. But then I got their attention even more when they asked me to read for the role of uh, Carl Perkins. Because what they wanted me to... The part they wanted me to read for was when Carl gets angry at Elvis for taking his song, Blue Suede Shoes, and performing it before him on Ed Sullivan, when it should have been his song presented by him to the public beforehand. And so I had to muster up some anger for this. And I thought, and I had always heard in acting, you want to bring it so that the director has something. They can always pull you back. But, but if you don't give them something, they've got nothing to work with. So right. I thought, okay, I'm going to do that a hundredfold. So I brought out the lion from within and I just was literally screaming at the top of my lungs in anger. Yeah. And um, when I got done with my monologue... The uh, 30 people were sitting there, I think a, a little bit awestruck and kind of didn't know what to do. So there, there was this awkward silence. And then, uh, and then suddenly Chuck Mead, lead yeah. singer of uh, BR549, he was the music yeah. director of yeah. the production. He lives in Nashville here, great guy, unbelievable musician. Yeah, awesome. But he broke the ice and he just said, Wild man! <laughs> That's what you are. You're a wild man. Yeah, he got that one right. So from that moment on, that was my nickname. Oh. And I got hired. They hired me. And uh, yeah, everybody called me wild man, which is funny because I was a family man. I had uh, three boys and a wife that I would get home to every night. And I and uh, meanwhile, most of the other cast members were going out partying every single night. Yeah. And I, and I never went out. Were you, you know? guys all living in New York at the time? I was living in Hoboken, okay, which was right across the water yeah. from Manhattan. It was unbelievable. It was a dream. Yeah, like I timed it one time. I had, I had a good, healthy, fast walk. Seventeen minutes from the theater to my door. Wow. 
uh, which is nothing. Like, because I, yeah. I had to take a ferry. Yeah. That was 10 minutes itself. It was amazing. We had a, a beautiful apartment right on the river and with Manhattan in our picture window. Nice. And I would take a ferry, really relaxing ride over to Manhattan and then walk to the theater. It was just a dream. Just a dream. Awesome. And that came to, like, how'd that come to an end? And you had that run? The, yeah. The, how long the, were you with it? And... Well, the show lasted a year and a half. Okay. Which is pretty remarkable, I think, for any show. Yeah. I think a lot of shows get to, first of all, it's a one in a million to even get on Broadway. Yeah. And then it's another one in a million to stay on Broadway. I think a lot of shows close within a couple of weeks because well, it's, it's not working out. Yeah, especially something like older music. The youth is not... Yeah. That music, though, that, that older old rock and roll music permeates the soul, though. I know kids, like in my music appreciation classes, I'll put Chuck Berry on, and they're all their, st- their toes start tapping. Wow. Like, cool. it, you know what I mean? That Something about that, the beginning of rock and roll, had so yeah. much soul oh, yeah. on the recordings that it gets people moving. It, no it doubt. Soul. But it's, it's still, in this day and age, with all the modern music and hip-hop and things like that that's so hot right now... For something like that to last. Yeah, well, I think know? it had a lot to do with the four names, you know. Yeah. Especially the three names. Yeah. Familiarity. Familiarity. You see a lot of that working out on Broadway, you know. Yeah. Familiarity you, sells tickets. Yeah. Have you been to the Legendary Sun Studio and toured, done the tour there? I have not. Oh, I yeah, need to. You can stand in there. So it was the original spot. It's back in the original spot now, but it had moved. It, it was a laundromat or something for a while, and then they got the building back and restored it to nice. exactly its wow. original and you could stand in the spot where cool. Jerry did Great Balls of Fire. Yep. Nice. You can sit. Uh, some of the equipment is original. Hmm. Um, and so I took my sons there. We were in Memphis for about three days and we did the tour. It was amazing, man. Hey, if you want to do road trip, we'll go over and do it. That'd be cool. So what, three hours, two and a half hours away? That'd be away? great. But uh, it's, it's, I recommend that and, and you'll... Obviously, you'll be able to relate. Can I do a little tangent? Speak since we're talking about Memphis. Yeah, yeah. Go this for is it. one of the greatest days of my life. I was with my teenage boy, who's a big Mac DeMarco fan, and Mac DeMarco was playing at the Mempho Music Festival in Memphis. And I said, "Man, I want to go." So we go to this festival, and I, I knew I had seen footage of Mac DeMarco being really nice and kind to the audience. Like he, even get a guy up to sing a song, or yeah. you know, like just really gracious toward the audience and I thought you know what let's make a sign for Mac and we'll hold it up and and uh, my son Jivan he said well what, what should we write on it and I said um, my dad wants to meet you <laughs> I think it's I think that's what it said so we're like... We, Another standout sign, right? Okay. Knowing you. Okay, so back in the day of you and I going to heavy metal concerts, like oh, yeah. I was pretty darn good at weaseling my way up to the front row. Oh, yeah. You know, I just... Yeah. And so I had that experience. I used that to my advantage when oh, we yeah. went to the Memphis Music. Jivan, I said, Jivan, just follow me. And I just like totally wriggled our way up to like the second row. Uh, a little disconcerting because you just you got a sea of teenage kids oh, yeah. smoking dope and, and it's like sweaty and my, bodies my boy it's like pre-covid oh, pre-covid bodies on bodies yeah yeah hot but, so we got this sign and Mac starts playing eventually and um, we hold up this sign and he he could tell he's in between songs he starts reading it and he goes so 
okay, who's the dad? Who's the dad? <laughs> and I and my son and I would go, Jared. And he goes, Gerard? No, Jared. And then pretty soon, Gerald? Like he's getting it wrong every time. And then pretty soon, like a huge group of people surrounding Jared. us. They're, saying, they're all saying, no, Jared. <laughs> and finally he goes, well, nice to meet you, Jared. And uh, anyway, it's funny. And it, it was funny because I noticed uh, a couple days later, this girl who was backstage got it on film. Oh, cool. So it's actually on film somewhere. Oh, nice. But that That's was fun. such a cool moment. And then, and then, uh, and, nice then we, and then we snuck backstage. We snuck back into the VIP. That was <laughs> that was the most fun of the entire thing because we were like acting like, uh, you know, spies or something. Like we're crawling under fences and <laughs> we'd see people coming and like duck down under bushes. Well, all of, of all people I know, you shouldn't. You know, we should. Well, you probably didn't have an in with that management company, so... No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was cool going back and VIP, were eating like kings and... Well, that's great that and, you... And my boy, he got to actually hang out with Mac for a minute. Well, that's good. So I was, was going to cool. say, having that moment with your son. I have two sons, I know. Amazing. Those, there's nothing like sharing those moments with your child, you know? Yeah. Like, it's... And that, you know, we did all that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And now, you know, fast forward, you know, we've met people. And now, now when we meet people, you know, I mean... Other than the time I was at the Dave Chappelle show in Atlanta, and I actually sat next to Robert De Niro. Oh, wow. Um, blew my mind. Like, I, I can normally handle those things. And hey. I was like, my girlfriend had to tell me, like, uh, it does not she, she's, like she's like, don't try and shake his hand. Oh, don't wow. try and talk to him. And I, you couldn't have phones there because they were trying to new comic material, so you had to lock your phone up oh, or wow, keep it in yeah. the car. But other than that, I mean, I've met a lot of people these days. You know, we've come full circle, and you've met people as well. And we're just like they're just people, man, and you, oh, yeah. you treat them with respect and be cool. But kids, that I that that wonderful young age of discovering music, and that 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 high on life, like from the music, yeah. and you get to meet that artist, yep. which sometimes, you know, if it's not a great art, yeah. you're not a kind person, it's not a. They always say, "Don't meet your idols," right? Um, mm. uh, you know, but in general, I've had good experience with that. So um, the the Broadway thing and that that anything that. Uh, do you think you left it all on the stage? You're happy with, with your career with that? Is there any of that in the future for you? Or you're going to concentrate solely on the album for now? And you, you never yeah, know? Yeah, right now, um, you know, I, uh, the delusions of grandeur have not left. They're yeah. still in my mind. Yeah, me either. So, and um, in this day and age with the Wild West, of music that we've got going on, you know, uh, you know, the record companies are not in control. I mean, if we have an idea and we figure out an interesting way to promote it, we can promote it to the entire world. Yeah. I mean, isn't that mind-boggling? Yeah. And I think there's an audience for everything out there yeah. these days. So it's just a matter of kind of being creative and figuring out how to present it. Yeah. But man, anything goes this day. I mean, I've got huge dreams of what I'd love to do musically. One, you know, one thing I would love to collaborate with just hundreds of people, yeah. worldwide. The more, the better. Uh, but I figure this. Yeah, I do. I am working on a record right now, and I kind of want it to represent kind of my core, the core sound and that I have in my heart for making music and kind of have whatever collaborations or whatever might happen from there to blossom from that. Cause I'm very extremely eclectic, maybe the most eclectically minded musical person 
I've ever met. I mean, I just, I love all music. I yeah, don't care you're, if it's you're, you're a deep cat, man. I don't care if it's opera or just like a forty-eight hour African ritual where a guy is just wiping a drum for forty-eight hours. Like yeah. that interests me. Like yeah. if it's musical, it's interesting to me. So, and there is a guy from Stomp. Stephen Dean Davis, who's a ridiculously talented guy who we've done some stuff. We've created some music together that I think is very promising. So see what happens with that. My mom is a screenwriter and um, Anna, she writes screenplays as well as uh, theater. She wants me to do music for some stuff she's working on. So that's kind of more of a film scoring or a musical theater kind of a thing. Yeah. So I just, and then I would love to nurture other people coming up, you know, young or old. I thought just with all the experience I've had, I feel like if I would have had a mentor, more mentors along the way, I could have saved a lot of time. Yeah. Like, for example, like we talked earlier about how I wish someone would have told me when I was 15 years old, dude, don't try to sound like anybody else. Yeah. Sound like you. You know, stuff like that. I, I would love to tell people what I've learned along the way and try to save them some time. I think those, what you call delusions of grandeur, are, are good, are, are kind of an incentive, right? Like, because no one's telling me, you know, no one's saying, as long as you don't have people in your life that are going, what are you, crazy? And because everybody has those people. I mentioned that earlier, you know, like, you're never going to be able to do, <laughs> are you insane? Yeah. You know? And if you have to get yourself away from that, because I've had people in my life, you know, tell me those things, especially at my age, you know, are you, are you sure you, you don't want to give it the, up? The dream's right never going to die. Right. Let's, let's face it. Yeah. If you've got it, it's not, <laughs> no, it's not going away. And I have other things too. I mean, I told you about some of the film score stuff, but I mean, I actually, I'm not the world's greatest guitar player by any means, but I have songs in me. You can get her done. I, and I want to, I've, you know, I'm a rocker. So I, I know at some point I'm going to, I'm going to have a little project Yeah. right now. I'm just trying to get on track with, uh, with my forte, which is drumming and yeah. maybe do a little bit more acting, which again, that goes back to your falling into. Yeah. Like I, I'm not, I'm no huge star and like that, but I got very blessed to be featured on Stranger Things and yeah. those things. That's amazing. And people are always going, Oh, how that happened? I'm like, well, first of all, you know, I'm not, you know, I like talking about it because it's so fun when you get to be a part of a project like that, even if on a small level, and you get even featured in an episode. You know, it's it's neat to talk about and share. But I'm not. I'm under no grand delusion of grandeur. Like like I'm no movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I I got to be on screen for something that is one of the biggest productions in the world right now on Netflix. And mm. but again, all that I just completely fell into. And there's there's something like I talk about. That's why I call it Sunday Music Soapbox about preaching. Is like there's an element of when something great happens in your life. Yeah, you're striving for something, but something when you fall into something and the pieces just fit, rather than you trying to force your hand on. Well, I'm gonna do this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. when you you look for doors that open and you go, okay, yeah. Because I had done the teaching thing for so long, and I was like at the crossroads. I'm like, well, I know I want to. I'm still going to teach in some facet, but I didn't know, you know, that I would end up doing rock band in, in Nashville, which is a blessing. But like, you fall into something, and it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it takes the pressure off of you because you're not desperately seeking that. Well, it, it just like the planets line, and good Lord kind of has a hand in thing. it, and 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 it's right time, right place, and 
there you are and you can't force that time it's it's a yes if it's meant to happen it's meant to happen it's in your destiny somewhere and uh and it takes away the neediness and everything and there I'm on set and I'm I haven't I wasn't doing background acting half as long as some of the people who've been doing it for 10 20 right. years yeah and I'm on my second day of the set and I'm like you and I got picked for everything right. you know and, and it just that kind of stuff's random a little bit at times well I gotta but, say uh, as as wildly crazy as my dreams are in my head, I don't think they come close anywhere near what God has for us. Yeah. So I like to try to keep myself open. Like, God, I've got all these desires and all these plans and all yeah. these schemes, but I really want to go your way because your yeah. way is like the way. eight million times yeah. what I've got planned. Yeah. Anything I've tried to force in my life has not turned out great. Or has been short-lived. Yeah. And so now, you know, coming to Nashville, everything fell into place. Even in these chaotic times I'm having right now, things are falling into place, you know, good Lord willing. And, like, it's a blessing, man. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Jared, it's been awesome talking with yeah, you, man. Yeah, great. I, I know we'll have more uh, more talking sessions and stuff, but... Uh, you're you're a great person and uh, and all the stuff that the the personality and the energy that you bring you have so much energy, and uh, it's no wonder that you've been able to be successful in some things. And I uh, I wish you the best on your album, and I hope those things come out great. And I can't wait to uh, to hear about it. Thank you. It's been great. All right. Thanks a lot. This concludes episode five. Jared Mason, Delusions of Grandeur. Please follow Sunday Music Soapbox on Facebook, Instagram. Or you can email us at sundaymusicsoapbox at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.